Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Also, I'm the Executive Director of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, before we begin, I just have a quick note about the foundation. We've started on our massive literature review to uncover every possible treatment for anxiety and depression and related disorders. We're going to be going through about 5,000 pieces of material, lectures, scientifically reviewed papers, books, interviews of people, etc. All this will be put together into a low or no cost resource for people suffering or people that know someone that suffers. So to find out more, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org because we could use your help. So today, my guest is Peter Keller. Uh, he's the co-founder and CEO of Monopteros Therapeutics. Uh, the website is M-O-N-O-P-T-E-R-O-S-T-X.com. So over the last decade as a biotech entrepreneur, Peter Keller, he's helped to steer companies such as Alan Therapeutics, uh, Divide and Conquer, Disarm Therapeutics, which was acquired by Eli Lilly and company, uh, Selecta Biosciences, listed on NASDAQ, and Inventiva, also listed on NASDAQ. So we're going to talk to him about his current work at Monopteros and uh, his background. So, Peter, thanks for coming. Thank you, Rich. Glad to be here. Yeah. Well, tell me a bit about, you know, again, your background and your current work, as promised. Yes. Yeah, as you mentioned, I've been working with a lot of biotechs in recent years, and my whole career, has fa- I have focused on interfaces. Um, so I studied as industrial engineer to explore the interface between business and engineering and solve the problems of over-engineered products, for example. And um, then I became a management consultant for 10 years. And there I tried to optimize demands in the market of pharmaceuticals with products. And um, what I've done there, for example, I found out that there's a demand for an anti-infective to treat Helibacter H. pylori virus infections. And we initiated a trial to combine protein pump inhibitors with a specific uh, antibiotic, uh, which helped patients. So physicians were using it in the market 
However, there was no research. So I tried to bridge that interface. Uh, I worked also for big pharma companies like Solvay Pharmaceuticals and Abbott. And there I um, was specializing on integration of companies that were acquired by the bigger company and try to integrate and optimize how the two R&D organizations work together. So that was kind of my background. And I started my biotech career after that um, and in the companies you mentioned. And here I really found, I think, what is my vocation to really bridge the interface between academic research and uh, industry and try to try to find basic research ideas that can be developed into products. And that's what we are doing at Monopterus. Well, I have a question about this. What is the typical path from academia to, um, you know, to adoption by companies and then clinical use? What does that look like? Yeah, so typically you have a professor who does research and uh, publishes it typically in one of the big journals. So you have Cell, Nature, uh, the ones that everybody reads. And they're, of course, venture capitalists that read them too. And then they approach the physician or the academic and try to work with the person to make a business plan. And that's also how it worked for Monopterus Therapeutics. Even though I'm not a venture capitalist, I'm an entrepreneur. And the professor, Torsten Mempel and Uli von Andrian, who are at Harvard Medical School, they approached me and said, like, look, this is our research. It has not been published. It will only be published in a year. Do you think we can make a product out of it? And so I looked at the research uh, results and started to work on a business plan, started to look at a molecule that could replicate what they have found um, with their research, uh, where they genetically knocked out um, uh, an enzyme called MOLD1, or where uh, they used a tool compound um, that's a generic, which cannot be developed uh, commercially because there would be no IP protection and had, didn't have the ideal properties for a drug. So we started looking for drugs that could fit the bill. We found one at the Hamels Institute in Munich in Germany, and we were able to uh, secure a license option for it. And so we had the license option, option for the drug. We had a, a business plan, and then we shopped around to find investors. That was all in 2018. By the end of the year, we had the package together, the business plan, the molecule, the funding, and started the company in 2019. Very good. So what is Monopteros uh, working on right now? What are some of the initiatives? Yeah, so the idea is basically what, what I told you about um, the research that Torsten Mempel did in 2018 and published in 2019 in Nature is about regulatory T-cells. And uh, what he found is that regulatory T-cells uh, can be reprogrammed uh, specifically in the tumor microenvironment. And when I talk about reprogramming, that means that the T-regulatory cells, also called T-regs, lose their immunosuppressive function and start to produce pro-inflammatory signals called cytokines. And he found that this happens predominantly in the tumor and doesn't happen in healthy tissues, uh, which is a very important finding because there we have a window of opportunity to reprogram T-regs to make them part of the immune attack against the tumor without affecting the Tregs regs in the uh, healthy tissue where they are needed to keep immunological peace um, and prevent autoimmune diseases. So that's really the key fun, uh, finding he had. And so as he saw that these T regulatory cells in the tumor microenvironment depend more on this enzyme called MOLD1, it was a logical step to uh, find a drug that inhibits MOLD1 in those regulatory T cells and uh, see if he can use it for um, anti-tumor applications. So what, what do you think is the mechanism? Like are the tumor cells secreting like extracellular vesicles that mm -hmm. are going into the Treg cells and changing their uh, their function? No, so so what we think it happens is that, so it's an intracellular enzyme. And so the enzymatic function is needed 
for the Treg to stabilize and maintain its immunosuppressive function. So it's an immune signaling through genes that call NF-kappa B, for example. So the enzyme needs to cleave products that then express the uh, signaling that keep the Treg as an effector Treg and keep it immunosuppressive. When we block the enzyme, that signaling pathway cannot happen. And instead, those uncleaved products start expressing genes uh, that produce cytokines such as interferon gamma. So the idea is to what, knock out production of this enzyme? Does it only have this role or what does it do? Yeah, so the enzyme itself is actually expressed in many B and T cells. And it has a role in basically maintaining the uh, phenotype of immune cells. So in infector T cells, it is also needed to maintain the effector function of cytotoxic or cytolytic T cells or of B cells. But here, what really comes into play was the finding that these Treg depend more on the enzyme than uh, in the tumor than Treg or T cells or B cells in other uh, environments. And so we have here a therapeutic window where we can knock down or, or prevent the enzymatic function, have the Treg change. Uh, their phenotype, make them part of the immune attack without affecting the function of other cells in healthy tissue or also in the tumor. That that is really key of the research that Thorsten did at uh, at Harvard, that you have this window of opportunity, I call it, where you can affect the T-Rex without affecting anything else. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Not systemically, how do you do it locally? So the drug we have found is a partial inhibitor. So what you typically want to do with enzyme inhibitors, you want to occupy or knock down the target at 200% or close to 100%. What we have found is a drug that a partial target occupancy. So you, we, we probably inhibit the enzyme by 50%. And our drug is very well absorbed in high profuse tissues. That means it goes very well in tumor tissues um, where there's a high blood flow. And so we get a high concentration of our drug in the tumors, whereas we do not get such a high concentration, for example, in, in circulating, uh, in, in, in the blood circulation, for example. So really, um, that was key that we find a drug that uh, fits the bill, that gets the right, that gets predominantly into the tumors and um, where we can dose it such that we get a 50% target occupation, um, which leads to the reprogramming and doesn't affect the other cells. And um, this uh, is, it sounds complicated, but what Torsten did is you can genetically knock down targets such as MOLD1 in T-Rex. So he first knocked down mold one in all T-Rex, 100%. There was no mold one in T-Rex. The animals that he used for the study all had autoimmune disease and were not viable. So then what he did is he knocked down the mold one target in 50% of the T-Rex or 25% of the T-Rex. And there the animals were perfectly healthy, total normal immune system. However, when you implanted the tumor, the tumor grew much slower 
than in control tumors where the MOD1 target was not partially knocked down. Were there off-target effects or what happened? Um, no, no. So they were completely healthy, completely viable. So it seems like the healthy immune system in healthy tissue does not need 100% of this small one enzymatic function. It is only when you go into uh, unhealthy tissue, like the T-Rex, uh, in the tumor, where you can see that the dependency of the, uh, on this small one target increases. It is still, uh, many other people, not only Torsten's, look at destabilized T-Rex in the tumor microenvironment. And one culprit for T-Rex being destabilized in tumors is um, hypoxia. So there's less oxygen tumors. And that seems to, it seems that the T-Rex don't like it. So that they increase the expression of MOLD1, they increase their dependence on MOLD1, which we then can employ, deploy it for therapeutics, as, such as uh, MPT-0118, the drug we currently are developing in the clinic and testing in patients. Well, what happens to the T-Regs as they approach the tumor microenvironment? Do they turn away? Do they just go there as normal? Do so, they yeah. tend to stay resident near the tumor and hang out or what happens? Yeah, so that's really an important question. So um, T-Regs are a key player of the immune system. So, so you have the CTLs, the cytolytic T-cells, you have the B-cells. They're all part of attacking an infection, attacking the tumor. T-Regs are part of the immunosuppressive immune system. So what their responsibility is to downregulate an ongoing immune response or prevent an immune response. And that's very useful because T-Rex recognize self-antigen, so healthy tissue, uh, own tissue, and uh, tell the immune system, no way you attack here, don't attack because this would lead to autoimmune disease. And what happens in tumors is that they grow very slowly over time and um, they uh, may not, uh, and no immune attack happens because over time, your immune system s starts to think this is self-antigen, this is healthy tissue, and the T-Rex populate the environment of the tumor, around the tumor, and tell the, the CTLs and the B-cells, go away, there's nothing to see, don't attack. So that is one function of the T-Rex, or once there is a strong information, strong immune response uh, going that, for example, was initiated by a checkpoint inhibitor, the T-Rex come and say, well, this is enough, this has been going on for too long. We infiltrate the tumor microenvironment to tell uh, the immune cells not to exaggerate, not to create overly inflammation, and they also then downregulate this ongoing immune response. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And that's what you see with the checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, you, I'm sure you heard about Keytruda, Obdivo. Those are the uh, immuno-oncology drugs that are currently on the market. Uh, when they work, they have an incredible effect for, for patients, uh, high quality of life, progression-free survival, but they do not work in all patients. They only work actually in 15 to 20% of all solid tumors. And so why is that? So um, there are a checkpoint inhibitor resistance, and there's, uh, you distinguish between primary resistance and secondary resistance. So primary resistance is, uh, you call them also cold tumors, such as ovarian cancer, colorectal cancer, pancreatic cancer. So those hard-to-treat cancers are cold tumors. There's not much immune reaction, not many immune cells in the tumor environment. There's not much going on. And those are the tumors that grew slowly, and the T-Rex keep everything away. There are no checkpoints expressed, so anti-PD-1 antibodies, those checkpoint inhibitors, they cannot have any effect there. And um, so there, it's, of course, important to get rid of the T-Rex to get uh, an immune response started. However, just getting rid of T-Rex is not enough because you need to also induce an inflammation to recruit new immune cells to start attacking. And that's where the reprogramming comes into play because what, what our drug does is not only make the T-Rex lose the immunosuppressive function, but also to start 
producing an inflammatory signal in the form of interferon gamma. And that then starts a cascade of immune responses that attack the tumor. And that's different from other companies. There are many startups working on T-Rex nowadays, but they typically look at depleting, also killing the T-Rex or preventing them from proliferating or preventing them from infiltrating the tumor. So we think that with the T-Rex reprogramming, we have a better way to treat the primary resistance to checkpoint inhibitors and treat those cold tumors. What about chemo or radiation? How is that going to interact with this uh, T-Reg, you know, uh, gene knockouts? Has that been uh, observed yet? Yeah. So, well, typically in most of those cold tumors, um, you start first with surgery. So cutting, burning, and poisoning is, is basically the, the, the strategy we've been following for the last 50, 60 years. So you would still do this in most of those cold tumors. But unfortunately, once you, you, you do the surgery, once you do radiation, and once you do uh, chemotherapy, most of those tumors come back and they start progressing. And when they progress, you will have no response to immunotherapy. And we think that with with these T-Rex building up still after all these uh, primary or or first-line treatments, that we can have a chance to prime the tumors, make them more inflammatory, and then treat them with checkpoint inhibitors and see see an effect. It's going to be effective before... The, the standard of care, or does it have to go with the standard of care or after it? Or so, what's the ideal placement for this therapy? Yeah, I mean, of course, as with all immunotherapies, we would try to treat as early as possible because the side effects of immunotherapies are less than you would have with the chemotherapy or radiation. But development path, like for many other drugs, would be first to look at be second line after standard of care. And we would still expect to see an effect there. And then once we have seen an effect in second or third line. We would then, of course, gradually try to see if the effect would also be better than what you would get with chemotherapy. Basically following the same path as Keytruda or Devo are following, uh, going first from second or third line, gradually going into first line where they are in melanoma or head and neck cancer. The immunotherapies are becoming already first line. It seems like they were used so far only after the standard of care had been done. But is that going to be a... Is that a big shift where they are going to be used in place of or before standard of care? Uh, yes. So they are starting to get into first line for, for certain hot tumors where you have a lot of expression of the target of these antibodies like PDL1. So people take biopsies from, uh, from the tumors. And if there's a certain high percentage of PDL1 expression, then uh, the antibodies can be used in, in first line as well. Yes. So where are you at with um, this uh, Treg inhibitor or this knockout? I mean, the bold one. Reprogramming. Yeah. So we did, as I said, we started in 2019, really from the scratch, and we focused on the pharmacology. So we did animal uh, models where we implanted tumors into mice, looked at we could shrink the tumors in mice, and um, then we were really curious to see if the mechanism that we are seeing in mice is really based on the Treg reprogramming. So what we did was we, we developed analytical methods to see really if these Tregs changed and if they made interferon gamma. And indeed, when we um, when, when we took the, the tumors from the mice, they had more Tregs that made interferon gamma. The next step was to also to experiment with human cells. So we procured um, uh, tumors, uh, resected tumors from patients. And just first, just ex vivo culture them with our drug. And then again, analyzed if the T-Rex uh, were changing, and they did. And then we also processed the human tumors uh, that we resected into what's called spheroids. So we um, nur- nourish them with collagen um, to make the immune cells around the resected tumors 
survive because typically the immune cells go away very quickly when you take tissue out. And um, so those are called tumor spheroids. And then we gave to those spheroids uh, our drug as well. And so that is the spheroids, uh, the cells were killed. And then when we plugged interferon gamma with an antibody, this, the killing stopped. So we could really see that this, this killing uh, in those spheroids was dependent on interferon gamma, which is then again a sign that the mechanism that we propose is, is really at work in those cells. And only once we had done all of this, we said, okay, now we, are, we, we have a mechanism. It has an effect on tumors. It is this, this effect that we observe is, can be reduced to the proposed mechanism. Only once we had all of that, we started preclinical development, which was happening last year in 2020. And we did all the formal tox studies. We did the manufacturing scale up, which led us then um, to file an IND in January this year. And we started dosing the first patient in April this year. In terms of clinical trials and getting to the clinic, what's the path from here? So um, we're now working on what's called a dose escalation and cord expansion clinical trial. So those are there are three parts. Part A, which we are currently doing, is to gradually increase the dose to see what is the maximum tolerated dose, what is the recommended phase two dose, and what is the concentration of our drug in the patient's blood as a single agent. So that's the first part. We call it part A. And so we have to go from a relatively low dose, treat the patient for one month, and observe if there are any dose-limiting toxicities. If there are none after one month of treatment, we allow it to increase the dose and go to the next cohort. And so we have to go gradually higher and higher, and every time see within those four weeks of treatment if there are any adverse events or not. So that's how we're going to find the uh, maximum tolerated dose. Initially, we start with one patient per cohort, but when we see the first side effects, we're going to have to increase the cohort size to three patients and then to six patients. And we are using for those first trials, for very early clinical trials, we're using all comers, which means all types of solid tumors. Um, so once we have done that, we know that what the recommended phase two doses of the monotherapy with our drug alone, which can prime the tumors for checkpoint inhibitor therapy. But we also want to know, because we would like to add checkpoint inhibitor therapy at some point, because once the T-Rex are reprogrammed, you want the checkpoint inhibitors to increase the immune attack, increase the killing of the tumor cells. That's why we do part B, where we try to find out also going through these dose escalation steps, what is the maximum tolerated dose in combination with the checkpoint inhibitors. So the role of this is to slow down the tumor activity so that other immunotherapies or other therapies can take hold, but this therapy itself is not to knock out the tumors, it sounds like. Yeah, so it's, um, I call it the, the, the prime, they prime the tumors. If there are a lot of T-Rex that are effective in a tumor microenvironment, um, no immunotherapy today, known today, has a chance to work. They're just too immunosuppressive. And uh, when we can reprogram those T-Rex, T-Rex to lose their immunosuppressive function and also make the tumor environment more inflammatory, then there is a synergistic effect with the known immuno-oncology drugs because they are working on other targets, so, so-called break signals that the tumor cells have developed to stop T cells from eating them. So it's kind of like a don't attack me signal. And the more we inflame the tumor with our reprogramming, the more of those don't attack me signals the tumor will express. And that's where the antibodies, the immuno-oncology therapies that, we, that are currently on the market will, will still have a very important role. That's why really um, the, the combination is, is, is the most promising um, way to look at effective immunotherapies in those cold tumors. And that's really consensus in the industry. 
At some point, there were over 500 clinical trials with combination therapies. And that was kind of the industry threw the kitchen sink against uh, those resistant tumors. But I think there was not much hypothesis. What is a mechanism that really makes those tumors resistant? So they tried combination with chemotherapy, with other antibodies, with, with cell therapy, and nothing really worked. And I think it was because these things at the time were done too quickly. That's why I emphasized before that we are really consistently looked. We have an anti-tumor effect in mice, but is this anti-tumor effect really due to the mechanism we proposed? And is this mechanism essential in um, getting a response? And only when we did all this translational work and checked all the boxes, we were comfortable to go into the clinic. So we think that being part of the second generation combination therapies with the existing immunotherapies, um, I think we have a better chance to see an effect in patients. But does this cause the tumor to deploy more of its resources or immunosuppressive tactics that it didn't do before? Does it nudge the tumor in a direction where you can see more of its uh, arsenal? Sure. I, uh, to some extent, yes. And th- that's why we have, that's why we need a combination therapy. So that's why I think non, none of those immunotherapies alone will lead to, uh, in those cold tumors, lead to a long and lasting effect. And so, but the more we understand about these immunological mechanisms and the more we treat them, the harder it will be for the tumor to be, be resistant and stay resistant. And so w- w- what we see is, and what's very well known uh, for a long time, that if you have more interferon gamma, which is this inflammation signal, which then recruits these uh, cytolytic T cells, the, the, the tumor reacts with expressing PDL1, which is the ligand that gives kind of an immune break signal to the cytolytic T cells. And that's what where the Keytruda works, for example. Uh, so the anti-PD-1 antibodies stop this, this linkage of the cytolytic T cell with the PDL1 signal of the tumor. And so then the cytolytic T cell can still continue killing the, t- um, the tumor, which otherwise it couldn't do. So while we are recruiting more help and make the tumor more inflammatory, the tumor expresses the PDL1, this checkpoint signal that we are very, very well aware of, uh, to defend itself. So, and then, of course, over time, there might be other signals because there's the CTLA4 signal that um, a drug like epilumab can address. So we will need more personalized and customized treatments as we are making cancers, control the cancers better and better with the immunotherapy. And my vision is that over time, we will have an arsenal of drugs that are based on our increased understanding of the immunotherapies to make cancers more like a chronic disease, to keep it always in check uh, from progressing by being one step ahead of what next break signal the tumors have. But I think with the T-Rex, which is at Monoptus, our target, we're really working on one of the key culprits and key players of the immune system that currently prevent better response rate um, than, than we see currently with uh, the existing treatments. What does this look like in a metastasized you know, person with tumor burden and multiple organs? How does it affect the different tumors differently, if so? So th- that's, I think, the strength of uh, the immunotherapy because your immune cells are present everywhere in your body. So, um, so they can attack wherever um, there is a foreign tissue, where there is a mutated tissue. And uh, so, so we can attack all the metastases at the same time. And that's what we also do with the clinical trial that I, I explained at the cord expansion part, part C of our clinical trial. We're going to look at uh, the, the tumor burden overall, and we're going to assess if the overall tumor, so, so we could, we're going to do CT scans 
and we're going to assess lesions all over the body because the patients we currently enroll are all, uh, all have metastases. And we're going to measure the tumor, the volume or the size of each lesion of, on the CT scan and look if we can stabilize, which then stable disease. So there's no growth of any of the lesions. Or if we have regressive disease, so at least one lesion have to, has to regress, become smaller without the others growing. Or if it doesn't work, we would have progressive disease, so uh, one or more lesions would start growing again. So that's the strength of the immunotherapy, that we work with the immune system that can attack everywhere in the body. That's different from localized therapies. I think uh, currently still oncolytic viruses are injected in the primary tumor locally, but then if you have metastases, um, they cannot work because they would not travel to the, uh, the site of the metastases. Um, so, so I think that's the difference um, and the beauty of, of immunotherapy. Oh, so you don't know yet how it uh, differentially affects, let's say, the primary tumor versus metastases yet? Yeah, but it should affect, I mean, the, the tumor, the, the immune system will attack both the primary tumor and the metastases, I think is what I'm saying, because it, the, the immune cells don't differentiate necessarily between those two. They will just attack wherever there is mutated tissue. Well, have you looked at, or has anyone looked at, let's say, a, you know, cytokine expression in primary versus metastases or, you know, for other differences that, you know, I know genetically they're going to have differences. The Mets are going to be, you know, heterogeneous in a different way, but sure. Yeah, I don't know. Are, are, are other immunotherapies having an issue with this or is it not on the radar or is it not a problem? What, like what hints can you get from other therapies? So we know that if the primary tumor, for example, is a melanoma or lung cancer or head and neck cancer, which are those more hotter or warmer tumors that are more reactive to immunotherapy, where the response rates are 30 to 40% on typically. So, so those tumors are more inflamed and have a better they present more possibilities for the immune system to attack. And that would be in the primary tumor, but also in the metastases. Whereas if you have a cold tumor, such as pancreatic cancer, even if they become metastatic, they would still stay cold tumors and be express less of the immune infiltrates or have more less of those immune infiltrates that are needed for a, a good immune attack. So that, that those differences we know. For our drug, we have some markers. We're doing some proprietary research to find what are the markers of a primary tumor to have more of those destabilized T-Rex that we can really reprogram. Because as I said, we need those T-Rex that are more on the edge of becoming uh, uh, less immunosuppressive and making interferon gamma. And so we have done some, some really sophisticated single-cell RNA work to figure out what types of tumors, primary tumors, have more of those destabilized T-Rex. And in our phase two trial, called expansion trial, we're going to focus away from the all-comers and focus on those solid tumors where we know there's a higher proportion of those destabilized T-Rex. And we would expect those destabilized T-Rex would be in the primary tumor, but also in the, in, in the metastatic lesions. Well, very good. Peter, what's the best mm -hmm. way for people to find out more about uh, your company and your work? Where can they go? So, well, they can go, of course, on the website first. And then uh, uh, we also are participating now in uh, conferences. We are participating in two upcoming conferences this year. And I will post the, the science and the posters that we are going to present at those conferences on our website. And uh, my email address will be also on those posters. And I'm happy to answer any questions that may come up. Well, very good. Well, Peter, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you, Rich. It was a pleasure. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. 
You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.